Father, we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus this morning, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, and what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 22. And if you do not have a copy yourself, you can find it on page 457 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Psalm 22. Abe Stratton and I are doing a four-part series on the book of Psalms, and we're looking at particular Psalms and how they reveal Jesus to us for the growth of our faith, for our growth in sanctification. So last week we looked at Psalm 16, with a particular focus on the goodness of the Father toward us in Christ Jesus. This morning we're looking at Psalm 22, and then in the following two weeks, Abe will take us to Psalm 45 and then Psalm 118. And all of this is to look at how Jesus is made known to us in the Psalter. I want to introduce Psalm 22 in kind of a roundabout way, and it will make sense once we get to the text itself. Back in 2008, I co-founded a nonprofit called Together for Adoption. Our primary objective is to provide theological training in the theology of adoption and orphan care. How is it that God speaks to us? what it means to care for orphans and their affliction. And so I've spent the last 10 years being able to focus on that particular topic. And during that 10 years, I've, I've traveled to countries in five different continents and have had the opportunity to see orphans in those many different countries. And one of the things you see that is universal, regardless of where you have fatherless children, children who have been orphaned, whether they lost one parent or two parents, is that they are in a dire circumstance. And in the world today, we have approximately 150 million orphans, those who have lost at least one parent, and then you have between 15 million and 18 million children who've lost both parents. So this is the world in which we live where children lose parents, And it's a particular concern for the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, where you have repeated references to God's concern for the fatherless and His command that His people be concerned for the fatherless as well. So let me give you some representative verses here. This is Exodus 22, verse 22, where Moses writes, "'You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child.'" Deuteronomy 10.18, referring to God, Moses writes, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 14, Moses then instructs Israel about the Feast of Booths. 
And with reference to the Feast of Booths, here's what he says. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. Psalm 10, verses 16 to 18 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You shall strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless. So God will hear the cry of the afflicted and he will do justice to the fatherless. Psalm 68, verse 5. David gives one of the reasons for praising God and he gives this reason for praising God because God is the father of the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And then in Psalm 82, verse 3, Asaph prays to God that he would give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted. The fatherless are the afflicted and the destitute. So the Old Testament is clear. Fatherlessness is a problem. It's a social injustice. It is a tragedy. So over and over, we find that God has a particular concern for the fatherless, and he calls his people to have a particular concern for the fatherless. But why is it a particular concern to God? Why is fatherlessness a tragedy, one that extends into our day? And here's what I would like to suggest. Fatherlessness is a tragedy because it cuts at the very heart of reality. Fatherlessness is a tragedy because it cuts at the very heart of reality. For all of eternity... There has been a father who has loved his son. Father is not something that God adopted once redemption began. God has eternally been a father, and as the eternal father, he has always loved his son. The eternal father has always had an eternal son. Jesus, in John 17, verse 24, prays to the father, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in his prayer, Jesus makes a particular note that the Father has loved him before the foundation of the world. Mike Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says this, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the logic, the blueprint for creation. He is the one eternally loved by the Father. Creation, then, is about the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. The fountain of love brimmed over. So given the primacy of God's fatherhood in Scripture... It should not surprise us then that God has a particular concern for the fatherless. Then you look at contemporary culture and we have sociologists, psychologists who speak of and write of father wounds because we live in a world where 
people are, have been abused by or neglected by or abandoned by earthly fathers. In his book, Life, God, and Other Small Topics, Conversations from Socrates in the City, Eric Metaxas points this out, that almost all the famous atheists of, of, of our era had one thing in common, and that is an absentee father or a traumatic relationship with their father. So why is fatherlessness such a significant problem? And here's, here's what I'm arguing. Because fatherlessness cuts at the very heart of reality. For all of eternity, there has been a father who loves his son and a son who loves his father. The love of the father for the son is the reason for creation, and it is the reason for redemption. And fatherlessness cuts at the very heart of that reality because the father has always loved the son. It is the basis and foundation for all of reality. So how does this relate to our psalm? Psalm 22 begins with the most horrific experience in all of existence. Puts a focus immediately on the most terrifying experience that can be experienced in all of the universe of reality. And this is an experience that Jesus himself endured on the cross. And so verse 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? So the fact that Jesus, God incarnate, experienced this God forsakenness to its infinite extreme tells us that this is the most horrific experience that anyone could ever experience. And what makes God forsakenness? Think of this. What makes God forsakenness so utterly horrific is that it's actually father forsakenness. Because what does the New Testament do? Jesus takes the words of the psalm upon his own lips on the cross. Psalm 22 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Hebrews 2 then places the words of verse 22, Psalm 22, verse 22, on the lips of Jesus. And then Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner notes that the very last verse in this psalm, verse 31, where it says that God has done it, is very close to the words where Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. And so we look at Psalm 22 as being the psalm of Jesus that Jesus spoke and prayed for, prayed through when he was on the cross. So God forsakenness is actually father forsakenness. And when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The very fabric of reality was cut into. So when Jesus cries us out on the cross and then he gives up the spirit and he dies, Matthew verse tw uh, chapter 27 verse 51 says the earth shook and the rocks were split. So what was happening at the cross when Jesus was forsaken by his father was cutting at the very heart of reality, but it was doing it for our good, for our salvation, for our rescue, for our deliverance. That's why 
to be forsaken or to feel forsaken is such a heart-rending experience for us. Because it cuts at ultimate reality. It leaves us utterly bare. If you are forsaken by God, you have nothing. So as we'll see here in a couple of minutes, for various reasons, the feeling of God forsakenness is a common experience for the people of God. It is not an uncommon experience to feel abandoned or forsaken. So what I want us to do is we'll read Psalm 22, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll skip down to verses 22 to 24, and then we'll consider Jesus, you, and God forsakenness, and we'll look at it under two headings. First, the Father's distance, and then second, the Father's nearness. And we see the Father's distance in verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then we see his nearness from the start in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So let's read Psalm 22, verses 1 to 11, and then 24 to 26. I'm going to start with the superscription, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me, see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And then verse 22. And I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all of you all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So let's look at the Father's distance. Psalm 22 begins with a superscription, and often we ignore or neglect the superscriptions, but they are actually the inspired text. They are part of the inspired text. Now, why is that necessary for us to note here at the very beginning of this particular psalm? One of the reasons it's significant is that it, it tells us that David's experience in this psalm, who penned this psalm, David's experience of feeling forsaken by God is not unique to him. That David's experience of feeling forsaken by God is actually given to David so that he might give it to the choir master that Israel as a whole may sing these words. 
So it is the common experience, not just of David at times to feel forsaken, but this is a this is a an experience that all of God's people from time to time, sometimes frequently, sometimes infrequently, but from time to time, all of God's people feel as if God has forsaken them, that he has abandoned them. And so God himself gives this particular psalm to David that he might give it to the choir master, that the choir master may then lead the people of Israel in singing this psalm and identifying with the experience of feeling forsaken by God. And the psalm then becomes a way for them to process that experience so that in the feeling of being forsaken and abandoned by God, they do not lose faith in God, but they continue to believe God in the midst of that particular feeling. That's why we've been given this psalm. And what's beautiful about this psalm, even more beautiful than what we've just seen, is that this psalm was appropriated by Jesus and he speaks it on the cross and it's attributed to him by the New Testament itself. And so Jesus himself gathers all of our experience of feeling forsaken and abandoned by God and he takes it upon himself and he prays it to the Father. So Psalm 22 easily divides into two sections. So section one is verses one to 21 and that's lament. And then section two is verses 22 to 31 and that is praise. So we have lament and then we have praise. Now the structure of section one is you have I, me, my paragraphs and you have you paragraphs. So the I, me, my is the psalmist, the speaker of the psalm, looking at his own problems, his own struggles, his own concerns, and then he turns that and looks at God. And so you have this movement back and forth between I, me, my paragraphs and you, God, paragraphs. So look at verse one. It says, I, me, my, why have you forsaken me? Verse two, oh my God, I cry by day but you do not answer me. And by night, but I find no rest. Verse six, I am a worm, but not a man. Verse seven, all who see me mock me. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. My heart is like wax. Verse 15, my strength is dried up. So you have those paragraphs throughout this first section. And in between those, you have references directly spoken to God. Verse three, Yet you, God, are holy. Verse four, in you, our fathers trusted. Verse five, to you, they cried and were rescued. Verse nine, yet you are he who took me from the womb. Verse 10, on you was I cast from birth. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. So these I, me, my, and you paragraphs actually work together to magnify the sense of the father's distance from us. Now, let's look at verses one and two. Now, what we have here, and this is important, is this is not a cry. So when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was not a cry of doubt or unbelief. This was a cry of belief. And Jesus didn't merely feel forsaken. He actually was forsaken. How do we know that this is not a cry of doubt or unbelief? Because he says what? 
my God, my God, repeats it. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And then he repeats it, verse two. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer me. And by night, but I find no rest. So the repetition of the word my three times in the first two verses indicates an ongoing personal relationship. David had this with God, an ongoing personal relationship. This was not a new relationship. And of course, we know that Jesus had an ongoing personal relationship with the Father that didn't just happen in this life after the incarnation, but happened for all of eternity past. And notice that in verse 2, that this feeling was itself ongoing. The forsakenness was itself an ongoing experience because of the intensity of it. So the psalmist writes, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. So this was not a quickly passing feeling. He cries by day, many days, and he cries by nights, many nights. And if that was painful for the psalmist, imagine how much more painful it was for Jesus. How so? Number one, Jesus was the eternal son of the Father. He only knew the love of the Father. He only knew the delight of the Father. And in his incarnation, what Jesus did is when he took Psalm 22 upon his lips, all the days and all the nights of forsakenness that his people experienced was gathered up upon Jesus and came crushing down upon Jesus because, Isaiah 53 verse 6, the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden of Eden, forsakenness became man's experience because of our sin. And Jesus gathers up all the forsakenness and the feeling of forsakenness that his people have suffered. He gathers it up upon himself and it falls down upon him and he is crushed because the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew the answer. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now notice in verses 9 and 10 that the emphasis on how personal this relationship was intensifies. Verse 9 says, you are he You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. Now with these words upon the lips of Jesus, Jesus was the perfect believer. Jesus trusted the Father perfectly. From the time he was taken from the womb, the Father moved him to trust him, to believe in him, to rest in him. Verse 10, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So this relationship of trust in the father as a man was nurtured from the time of his birth. The late 19th and early 20th century Scottish theologian H.R. McIntosh wrote this, which I find very helpful and encouraging. 
Listen to what he says about God forsakenness. The man who grieves over God's remoteness does so because he once enjoyed his nearness. And the lack of it now brings him to the verge of despair. Listen to that again. The man who grieves over God's remoteness does so because he once enjoyed his nearness. And the lack of it now brings him to the verge of despair. So here is Jesus, the ultimate speaker of Psalm 22. And no one was closer to the Father than Jesus. No one enjoyed more nearness to the Father than the incarnate Son. And so when Jesus was forsaken by the Father, when he was forsaken by the Father at the cross, the utter lack of the Father's nearness brought Jesus to the verge of despair. And isn't that what we are tempted to do when we feel abandoned, when we feel forsaken? We are tempted to despair. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus was tempted in every point as we are yet without sin. So Jesus himself was brought to the temptation to despair that the Father had forsaken him and would no longer look favorably upon him. And yet when Jesus was tempted to despair with this real temptation, Jesus despairing, he did not. We know that Jesus did not succumb to the despair of being forsaken by God, though he was, because he cried, my God. Jesus never ceased, even when he was forsaken. He never ceased to believe in his Father. He never stopped trusting his Father. He never ceased claiming the Father as his Father. No one has ever cried with a deeper sense of loss and deprivation as when Jesus cried this on the cross. And the good news of the gospel is that since Psalm 22 was sung by David and by all of Israel and was taken upon the lips of Jesus when he was on the cross, when the wrath of God, when the wrath of the Father was falling down upon him for our sakes, when Jesus took this psalm upon his lips, he gathered up every last bit of our grief over the sense of God's remoteness. And he took that experience to its ultimate end on the cross. Jesus really was forsaken. And that's not to say that the Father ceased loving him. No, the Father forsook him and it was a real forsakenness. But the Father, because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one, the Father never ceased loving him, but he forsook him so that when you had Jesus at the Jordan River being baptized and he comes up and the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was no reminder from the father that you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But the father was silent. And yet both David and Jesus and especially Jesus found encouragement from how God has related to the, our ancestors throughout all of Israel's history. Look at verses 3 to 5. Yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. 
To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. So the word fathers there is referring to Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses who cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard and he delivered them over and over and over again. And all of them trusted in the Lord and all of them were delivered by the Lord. So what Jesus is doing when these words are taken upon his lips is he's reminding himself of his suffering is that God has been faithful to his people when they have suffered. And if Jesus comforted himself with the faithfulness of God to sinful men who trusted him, certainly the Father will be faithful to him, the sinless one, who trusts him even in his God-forsakenness. And in the midst of all this agonizing personal pain, notice verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who See me, mock me. We see this happening in every account of the gospel narrative of Christ's suffering on the cross. This is what happens. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads and they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. The inhumanity of how Jesus was treated. Those who crucify Jesus know how to inflict mental pain where it is most dangerous. He's, those who crucify says he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. And the implication is that God really doesn't delight in you. Certainly. If the Father lets this happen to you, he doesn't delight in you. How could he delight in you? A taunting that's similar to what we find in Psalm 3. Another Psalm of David, and he writes, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying in my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. There is no salvation for him in God. So when we are threatened, or when we receive taunts, and we're tempted to doubt that God actually delights in us, that God actually loves us. The word from the enemy is there is no salvation for you and God. So when you struggle with a particular sin and you find yourself falling to that sin time and time again, the accuser of the brethren comes to us and says, see, there is no salvation for you and God. There is no help. There's no deliverance. There's no rescue for you and God. That is the temptation that the accuser gives to us in our weakest moments. And yet Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus knows the answer. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Is there salvation for us in God? Yes. In the God forsaken one, in the Father forsaken one who became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So when we doubt the Father's presence, when we doubt the Father's goodness, when we doubt his delight, when we feel his remoteness, when we feel his distance, when we look for answers and God provides none, 
We look to the one who on the cross cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the hymn writer puts it, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is the Father's distance. What about the Father's nearness? Notice again that the trust that Jesus had in his Father was during his most intense suffering. Even when he was forsaken by the Father. In verses 9 and 10, we have these words on the lips of Jesus. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So Jesus knew the fatherly tenderness of God from birth. The Father had brought Jesus up to trust him, to rest in him, to believe in his promises. And this is the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Jesus didn't merely know about the Father. He actually knew the Father. So even when he was forsaken by the Father, he rehearsed how the Father had brought him from the womb of Mary to trust him, to rest in him, to believe him, no matter what, no matter what his circumstances were. In John 5, 20, Jesus said, the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. So throughout his life, the father showed Jesus all that he was doing and the father hid nothing from Jesus. And then on that basis, Jesus prays in Psalm 22, verse 11, Be not far from me. Be not far. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Where else could Jesus turn but to the Father? Where else could he turn but to the Father? And if Jesus had nowhere else to turn but to the Father, and he turned to the Father even while the weight of our sin and the curse of the law crushed him, as he turned to the Father while bearing our sin, certainly we can turn to the Father because of Jesus. Who else do we have? Who else do you have even when you are feeling forsaken and abandoned? Look to Jesus because it is in him who turned to the father while he was bearing our sin and drinking the cup of the father's wrath. He trusted the father. Jesus knew he was father forsaken. And yet he also knew that his father could not and would not stop loving him. Mystery of mysteries. Forsaken and yet loved for our sakes. And even as a father forsaken person, Jesus refused to stop trusting the father. And as the people of God who are loved and cherished by Jesus... 
and are loved and cherished by Jesus' Father, we must not give up our trust in Him and His care for us. And then in verse 19, Jesus cried out, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. So there he is crying for the nearness. Oh, you my help, come quickly to my aid. And then when we get to verse 21, we have this incredible abrupt change. So you have this lament in verses 1 through 21. Jesus being forsaken by the Father and crying out that the Father would be near, that the Father would not be far off, that the Father would come quickly to his aid. And then suddenly in verse 22, that quick arrival of the Father happens. We don't get a chance to ease into the praise that follows in verses 22 to 31, but it launches into it. So rich and deep and full was Jesus' trust in the Father that when we get to this part of the psalm, it jumps into the victory of what the Father achieved for Jesus because of Jesus. The psalm moves immediately from a world of near despair to a world of full delight. From a world of near despair to a world of full delight. Notice verse 22. And the writer of Hebrews puts these words on the lips of Jesus to show that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He has achieved salvation. He has accomplished redemption by bearing our sin and drinking the full cup of the Father's wrath. And now he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And the evidence of that, Hebrews 2 tells us, as it quotes Psalm 22, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All you offspring of Israel. And then I love verse 24. Stand in awe of him because he has not despised. Listen, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. So even when the father forsook Jesus, the afflicted one, he did not despise or abhor Jesus, the afflicted one. And verse 24 continues, he has not hidden his face from him. Truly forsaken, but always the object of the Father's love for our salvation. So the wonder and delight of Jesus in these verses, in this second half of the psalm, is that the Father has come oh so near to Jesus by raising Him from the dead. And as we, as I mentioned, Hebrews 2 puts... Psalm 22, verse 22, on the lips of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is making it clear that Jesus is declaring, after all that he suffered on our behalf, Jesus is declaring his victory over death and the Father's rescue of him from the grave. By raising Jesus from the dead, The Father has come so near to Jesus that Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Not ashamed for them to be called my brothers. 
I will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And then the scope and beauty of this psalm expands. Notice verse 27. It's really quite breathtaking. As the psalm explodes out of the resurrection and moves into the ages to come. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness. Listen to this, to a people yet unborn that he has done it. The psalm moves into our time, into our generation. Which means that the second half of the psalm assumes the ascension. Because the Father's greatness and power and glory in raising Jesus from the dead is proclaimed to a people yet unborn. So this assumes the ascension of Jesus. I once heard Tim Keller say in a sermon, imagine what it was like when Jesus ascended to the Father after having borne our sin and drank the cup of his Father's wrath when he ascended into the Father's presence. Imagine the joy that the Father and the Son experienced in that moment. Because it was a moment in time when they saw each other for the first time. And how do we know that it was a moment in time? Because Jesus had a resurrected body. Hebrews 1.3 says that after he made purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So there was a moment in time and eternity when the ascended Jesus stepped into the presence of his father and imagined the joy that they shared. The embrace the love that they shared. Luke 15, we have the parable of the prodigal son. And we are the prodigals. We are the elder brothers. We are the prodigals. And Jesus took all of our sin upon himself. And he paid the debt of prodigals. Drank the cup of the father's wrath against our sin. And what happened when the prodigal returned to the father? The father ran out and embraced him and kissed him. This very moment, as you sit here hearing the words of Psalm 22, this very moment, the ascended Jesus is in his Father's presence and he is there for you. You may doubt the Father's presence. You may feel His remoteness. You may feel His distance. You may 
doubt that he loves you, that he delights in you. But the answer that the psalmist gives and the scriptures give is, gives is that the Savior who lived and died on our behalf and was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father and who has ascended to the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for us is the one to whom we look if we ever doubt that the Father loves us. The answer to that doubt is to see that the one who cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The one who cried that on our behalf bearing the curse of the law, who became a curse for us, that the one who bore that is now in the very presence of his Father on our behalf. And his presence there is the evidence that the Father loves you. And then notice verses 25 and 26. There's a festive setting here. From you comes my praise in the congregation, the great congregation. My vows, and vows here refers to the praise that Jesus here offers for the Father answering his prayers. So he says, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord May your hearts live forever. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Now in the Jewish law, it was written that if God had answered their prayers, the one who prayed was to throw a celebration with a peace offering. Leviticus 7 was to throw a celebration with a peace offering, was to gather everyone that he knew to the celebration and they were to enjoy a communal meal. And that is what we have here. And Jesus is the one who gathers us and he offers praise to the Father for answering his prayer and raising him from the dead, demonstrating the completeness of his finished work on our behalf. And he calls us to come and eat and be satisfied. No doubt, no wondering if we will be satisfied from eating, but the surety because of what Jesus has achieved in our behalf. That if we eat, we shall be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord and may your hearts live forever. And think of how this relates to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, yes, it is a sober supper. But it is a festive supper. Because we are people of God called to come and eat by faith. To eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. And God himself will satisfy us by faith. Let's pray. Father, Jesus is a marvel to us. His glories are displayed for us in the scriptures. And we look to him by faith. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what we are suffering 
we look to Jesus and we know that you delight in us, that your love for us does not cease, though we cannot see it, it is nonetheless any less real than the love that you have given to Jesus, even while he suffered in our behalf, and even now as he sits at your right hand as our ascended Savior. And so we pray that you would strengthen our faith in him, that our gaze upon him would grow faith and love in our hearts. And we pray this in his name. Amen.